an amazing uh, uh, part of his his teaching here this morning, specifically in verses four through six. But we'll pick up the context of it by beginning in verse one of John, chapter 14. Jesus, our savior, speaking, said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our Savior this morning. We thank you for all of the truth that you reveal to us about him. We thank you for the greatness of this Savior. Able to overwhelm our past, our present, our future with his life and with his sacrifice. We thank you for a forgiven past, an empowered present, Lord, the power of the Spirit to live a Christ-like life. And we thank you, Lord, for the hope of heaven that is out there endlessly before us as Christians. And Father, we acknowledge this morning that there is life and death in this room, as always, when your gospel is preached. Heaven and hell is it at stake in each person's life. We pray that you would make your word very simple, very clear, in the voice of your Holy Spirit to each human heart here today. And we pray specifically for those that do not yet know you, have not yet trusted in Jesus as their Savior, that today, as you would work in this room, that the lights would go on for them, and today would be their day of surrender and entering into the greatness of this life. We look to you for it. We ask it of you, Lord, in the one name of the one who has made all of it possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The context of the passage that we're looking at is that Jesus is in an upper room with his disciples somewhere in the city of Jerusalem on the night before his crucifixion for the sins of the world. And he has told his disciples that he is leaving and that following his death and his burial and his resurrection, he will be returning to his father's house. He will be returning to the heaven from which he came and that one day that he would return for them and for us to take us into that very heaven uh, for ourselves. And then Jesus declared in verse four and where I go, you know, and the way, you know, he was going to heaven and they knew uh, the way to heaven because Jesus had told them over and over again that he was going to be returning to heaven and, and how he was going to uh, return to heaven in the course of his three and a half year public ministry with them. But these men are very slow learners. I don't say that in a negative way. They give me great hope. It takes a, a long time for a lot of 
things to sink in for me, even as a, a Christian. Now, one of the twelve, by the name of Thomas, isn't getting anything that Jesus is saying here. He doesn't understand it, and specifically he doesn't understand verse 4, as Jesus said, where I go you know, and the way that you know. So he very respectfully asks, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and since we don't know where you're going, how in the world can we know the way to get to this place that we don't know that you're going to? Now, God bless the Thomases of the world. I am not a Thomas, and, uh, but I appreciate them a lot. Thomas doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about here. And it's not in him to pretend that he does. When a Thomas doesn't understand something, he's going to let you know that he doesn't understand something. If he has a doubt, he's going to let you know about that doubt. So Thomas isn't getting in any of this. And so he candidly just declares to the Lord that he doesn't understand what he's talking about here. I remember, and perhaps you remember too, being in school. And I remember very specifically uh, in high school, uh, especially in the subject of mathematics and the sciences, which were not my forte. I struggled with those classes and made good grades, but only after investing unbelievable hours in, into them. I had one teacher by, in the math, realm of math by the name of Mr. Demisio. He was an outstanding teacher. And then in chemistry, a man by the name of Mr. Dinsmore. And I remember in... I forget whether it was Algebra 1 or Geometry or Algebra 2 that I had uh, Mr. Demisio in. Everybody wanted to be in his class, and I was fortunate enough to get into his class. But sometimes he would get off on these postulates and these theorems and these different ideas and the math deals and all this stuff, and he would completely lose me. didn't take much, and he would do it. But there's oftentimes in, in a class like that, uh, you have a sense as a student, and I'm sure teachers realize this, there's some kind of a critical mass that occurs where you sit there and you're listening to the teacher and you're realizing, hey, I'm not the only person that isn't understanding what he or she is saying at the moment. There's a lot of other people that don't get this. And the confirmation is when you begin to look to the left and they're looking at you and you look to their, everybody's looking for hope. That somebody in the room is understanding it. And you realize with these sidelong glances that we're all in the same boat. And then in every class, always, I had a Thomas who would just fearlessly raise his hand in the middle of the sentence of the teacher and just say, as he says here to Jesus, you know, I don't understand what in the world that you're talking about here on this. And then Mr. Demisio, as, as he would be prone to do, is he would then regroup, try to express the concept from a little different angle. And then oftentimes with that, the light would go on for the majority of us. And we would understand what it is that he was trying uh, to say. And then for the rest of us in the class, we would be thankful for our Thomas, who was willing to admit his own ignorance when the rest of us weren't. We would rather remain ignorant and uh, possessing some semblance of self-esteem, I guess, through all of it. And our Thomases would rescue us over and over again. And so Thomas does that here. And, and in this 
uh, verse 5, notice that when he asks this question, he repeats a word, uh, we, twice in his question. In other words, Thomas is asking uh, two questions, and he's asking these two questions on behalf of all of the apostles. And we don't know if Jesus is speaking to him and they do kind of a quick conference together. You getting what he's saying? No, I'm not getting what he's saying. Anybody understand what he's saying? No, he's not understanding. Okay, I'll go ahead and I'll ask the questions. Or whether Thomas realized, wait a second, none of these guys are any smarter than me. And if I'm not, I'm not getting it. If they're not getting it, I know they're not getting it. And so I can ask the question on behalf of all of them. But he's asking on behalf of all of the disciples here. And he's saying two things to Jesus. Lord, we don't know where you're going, number one. And if we don't, number two, don't know where you're going, then how can we know the way? I, I believe there's considerable emotion involved in what Thomas says here in verse five. I don't think it's just some kind of monotone thing that he says to them. Jesus has just spoken to the disciples and said he is leaving. He is going someplace. Thomas looks at it and Jesus is speaking to them in a way that Thomas realizes that Jesus thinks, number one, we know where he's going and number two, how to get where he's going. And we don't have the foggiest idea about either of those issues. And there's nothing that these disciples wanted more than to, number one, know where he was going and how to get there so that this separation between them and Jesus would be as short as possible. He is in a panic over Jesus' departure and that Jesus is assuming that they know something about this that they don't know. That's the questions that he gives to him out of this concern. And for 2,000 years... All of mankind has been giving thanks for Thomas's wonderful question, because in answering Thomas's question, Jesus provides us with one of the most amazing revelations of himself to be found in all of the Gospels. He declared in verse six, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. One of the most beautiful autobiographical statements of Jesus in all of the Bible. And in this autobiographical, autobiographical statement that he makes concerning himself, he tells us four great, great things concerning himself. Number one, he declares himself to be the way. What does that mean? We notice the context of the statement was a conversation Jesus is having with his disciples about going to heaven. And so Jesus' answer to Thomas's first question, where am I going? I'm going to the Father. I'm going to heaven. His answer to Thomas's second question, what is the way to heaven uh, it, for uh, it, for me to for you? What is the way for you to go to heaven as well? And Jesus's answer to that is through me. And Jesus is declaring that he and he alone is the way to heaven, the way to God, the way to the father. Jesus does not merely teach the way. Jesus does not merely point the way. He does not merely reveal the way. Jesus declares of himself that he is the way. Salvation is found in a person. 
And when we make that person our own, then we will have salvation. Make that person your own and you'll have a personal relationship with God. Make that person your own and you will have the confidence of heaven after this life. And Jesus is declaring that salvation is not found in a religious system, but that it is found in a relationship, a relationship with him. And notice that Jesus not only declares himself to be the way of salvation, the way to heaven, the way to a relationship with God, but he declares himself to be the only way. Notice the singularity of the word the that is repeated three times in the verse. He said, I am the singular way. I am the singular truth. I am the singular life. The only way that a person can be saved is through him. He's not one of many ways that people get to heaven. He is the only way by which people Get into heaven. You can't get into heaven by virtue of being good, or at least slightly better than those terrible neighbors of yours. We don't get into heaven by uh, religious activity, attending church, or these kind of things, as wonderful as they may be in their place. We can't get into heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments or uh, doing good works, again, doing religious works. We can't get into heaven on the basis of anything else, only on the basis of faith in Christ. Peter preaching. The very beginning of the early church in Acts chapter 4 declared concerning Jesus. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul wrote toward the end of his life to his protege by the name of Timothy. And he declared to him, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, some people have a big problem with this claim of Jesus. And the big problem that they have is that they don't like the idea that salvation would be that narrow, that Jesus declares concerning himself that he is the only way. And one of the reasons that people have uh, problems with the narrowness, I think, of salvation is because in our society, it has been been very, very successful in conditioning people to think that narrowness or narrow mindedness is almost always something bad and usually dangerous. Until narrowness and intolerance consider concerning virtually anything, but especially concerning morality and spirituality today in our culture, increasingly it's anathema. It's just unacceptable. People will not uh, even listen to it. And so when someone believes in the teaching of Jesus, listens to his teaching of the exclusiveness of, of him as it relates to getting into heaven then very often that person is branded as intolerant and unenlightened. 
But Jesus declared, not just here, but elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, this truth. He said, enter in by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. He is completely unapologetic in declaring this. I think it's interesting in this whole debate about tolerance, intolerance, broad-mindedness, narrow-mindedness, and this idea that broad-mindedness and tolerance is always superior to narrow-mindedness and intolerance. I think it's good to examine it in the light of the brainwash of the culture. There are many places in life where we not only tolerate narrowness, but we expect it. We demand it. And if the people in these positions do not exhibit an acceptable intolerance and an acceptable narrow-mindedness, we will sue the living daylights out of them. We expect narrow-mindedness out of our pharmacists when they are given a prescription for 50 of a certain kind of pill, we expect them to be narrow-minded enough to ignore all of the other pills on the shelves and to supply us with the 50 that the doctors the doctor has prescribed for us. We would be horrified if we went to the shelf, uh, to the store and the counter and the pharmacist came out and said, listen, I got this notice from your doctor and I began to fill it. And I thought to myself, well, how narrow minded can we be? I've got all kinds of pills of all kinds of sizes. I've got yellow ones. I've got blue ones. I've got green ones. I've got white ones. I've got yellow ones. And I thought, I'm more broad-minded than this. So I gave you a handful of everything. Here you go. Well, if you partook of that kind of broad-mindedness, your very life would be in danger. We like narrow-mindedness. And our air traffic controllers, we like to believe that somebody's in charge of those airports and the plane's landing and the plane's taking off and that the man or the woman that is in is that air traffic controller is determining where these pilots are going to land. And when they tell when they tell flight, you know, 351 to land on runway 17, because that's the only safe place to land at this point in time. They exercise their narrow mindedness and they won't have any part of a pilot saying, listen, I always have to land on runway 17. I want to try something different. I'm going to land on runway 36. None of us would ever get into a plane again. If there weren't narrow mindedness in our air traffic controllers and in our pilots. I'm going to take a flight later this afternoon from Sacramento to Phoenix and then drive to Tucson. I don't want halfway in the journey for the pilot to come on. 
Listen, I know this is scheduled to take you to Phoenix. That seems so narrow-minded of all of us. So we're going to go to Dallas instead. I definitely like my surgeons narrow-minded. I've had a couple of surgeries. If I was to have a future one, to have an appendix taken out, say, and after you're in recovery and you're coming out, you know, I'm a little talkative when I come out of anesthesia. It's a little embarrassing, actually. I've never said anything wrong, but I'm so chipper to be back in the land of the living that I'm. I'll talk about American Idol with you. I'll talk about gardening. I'll talk about anything, you know. Hi, you know. Everybody in the room is my friend. But I, these have been minor surgeries, obviously. But if I was in a, if I was in a thing like that and, and the surgeon came in, I said, listen, Doc, how'd that, how'd that go? Did you find exactly what you, you thought you would find? And were, were you able to accomplish everything that you wanted to accomplish? Oh, yeah, that and more. Yeah, we got that pesky appendix out, but we were looking, and you have two of so many things in there. And we thought it would be so narrow-minded of us to just take out the appendix. So we grabbed a kidney and a lung and your right eye and uh, put them in a nice jar for you, you know, to put on your mantle. No, we don't like that. Narrow-mindedness is required. In every area of life, or the result would be terrible destruction and loss of life. And how is it that we cannot accept that narrow-mindedness is required in one area of God's creation for our survival, and that narrow-mindedness is not equally important in the moral and the spiritual realm of God's creation. And nowhere is this more important than concerning our salvation and our eternities. The real issue for us, the critical issue, is not supremely whether something is broad or narrow, but whether something is right or wrong or true or false. And here Jesus declares that concerning our forgiveness, our salvation, our entrance into heaven, that the way is narrow. There is but a single way by putting our faith in him. Jesus said in the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's you and me, believes or trusts in him should not perish, but have everlasting Life. Why is Jesus the only way? The reason that our forgiveness and salvation and entrance into heaven as a sinful descendant of Adam and Eve can occur only through faith in Christ is because he alone is uniquely qualified to provide us with that salvation and with that way. Only his perfect sinless life given for us on the cross could pay the price for sin that a holy God must demand. 
or else he wouldn't be holy if he didn't demand it. And only faith in Jesus allows God to remain perfectly just in saving sinful man and yet at the same time be able to justify sinful man. Now, what is the implications of this statement of Jesus? The implications are this. They're very simple. Each one of us in this room is either in the way or we are not in the way. If we have put our faith in Christ for salvation, then we are on the way to heaven. If you have not done that yet, then you are not yet on the way to heaven. Now, thankfully, that can all change with a prayer here this morning. Now, I think most of us in this room have heard the following statement at least once, and most of us have heard it many, many, many times, where someone will declare, you know, I just don't believe that there's only one way to God. I believe that all paths lead to God. Now, the, the, the person that makes that statement is making is declaring the truth, but they are declaring the truth accidentally. They are declaring it in a way that they don't realize. For the Bible really does teach that one day every person is going to stand before Jesus, no matter what road we have traveled on in life to get there. But the question is, will my road or will my way put me before him as my savior or as my judge? And only a faith in Christ makes that future meeting with Jesus a joyful one, because then we will stand before him as our, he, before him as our savior. Now, notice, too, in verse 6, Jesus declared himself to be the truth. What, is, what does that mean? Jesus is the truth. He doesn't merely teach us what is true. He is declaring that he is the embodiment of truth. Every word he ever spoke was just pure, unadulterated truth. Everything that he ever did, every action that he performed, every way that he conducted himself was the truth about how to live. There is no higher authority for truth in the world than Jesus. That's what he's declaring concerning himself. And he is declaring concerning himself that he is unfailingly reliable when he speaks to us of God and of eternity and of salvation. And Jesus is saying that if you have him on those issues, then you have the truth. You don't need to look anywhere else for the truth. He is saying that he is the truth and that if we reject the truth that is found in him, then all we are left to believe in our lives. And this is the one area in our life where we can't afford to believe a lie because it involves our eternities. Now, a lot of people, again, they don't like this kind of I am the way and I am the truth. They don't like the idea that there is one truth on this, these subjects. And so people will cry and they'll say, that's dogmatic. All truth is dogmatic. All truth is dogmatic. Well, that's intolerant. And they're absolutely right. 
All truth is intolerant. All truth is intolerant of what is a lie. Others cry out and say, well, that's arrogance. It isn't arrogant to call the truth truth. From the perspective of heaven, here is what true arrogance is. True arrogance is to call the truth a lie. That's arrogance. Not to call the truth the truth, because it is the truth. Some people say, well, that's exclusive, and they're right. All truth is exclusive because it excludes what is a lie. And to live a life apart from Christ is to live in complete ignorance about the truth concerning God and spiritual things. That's what Jesus is communicating. I like truth. I'm 55 years old. I've listened to more words in my lifetime. I've listened to more charlatans, more conmen, more phonies in politics, in business, in education, in religion, you name it, anywhere. And I know that I'm no different than you. And one of the things that happens as you grow a little bit older is you come to prize the value of truth. Someone who speaks the truth on any subject, let alone on a subject as important as this. The truth is a valuable thing in the human condition because it's so rare and it's so hard to find it untainted by fallen man. And it's good to know who we can trust in making the most important decision in our life, the decision we're making concerning eternity. And Jesus declares that he is the truth concerning that decision. Jesus further declared himself to be the life. That is, he's the source of everlasting life. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, chapter 5, he said, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And he who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son of God does not have life. Jesus is the source of abundant life. He is the source of even how to live life this side of heaven. Jesus spoke concerning the life that he gives in that vein. He said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Everything outside of the life that Christ calls us to, even before we enter into eternity. We're in eternity now, every one of us, but even before we get into heaven. This life that he calls us to, this life that he describes and says, do this and do that. And this is how God has created you. And this is how God has intended you to live. Anybody that is living a life other than in line with Jesus' truth in that realm isn't really living a life. 
existence and life are two entirely different things. And a person can exist in the great, you know, mantra through the ages is, is eat, drink and be merry. Tomorrow we die. God looks at that and says, I didn't create people to eat as much as they could and drink and be merry. And then at the end of their three score and ten fall over dead. That's not where life is found. That's existence at best. But it is not life. All of life as God has intended it to be is found in Christ, both eternal and then abundant life on this side of heaven. No other life is worth living than the life that he offers. And then Jesus closes out by verse 6 by declaring that no man can come to the Father except through him. He cracks me up. Does he know who he's talking to or what? He has just said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's almost like he anticipates they're not going to believe that I just meant what I said. You're going to get secular people and you're going to get worse religious people who are going to massage that statement and take away all of the power and the wonderful narrowness of it and try and make it something that I never said. And so he said, I will follow that behind that with a statement that nobody can misunderstand. I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father but by me. This is known as clarity. And when we're talking about eternity... We need clarity, and Jesus provides us with that clarity. It's interesting to me that he makes this statement concerning himself as the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by him without any hesitation, without any apology. There's no hand-wringing at all. And he makes this declaration concerning himself for the simple reason that it's true. Do you know that Jesus, and never ever as a Christian, never ever minimize the strength of what he has said here. God knows language. Jesus could have said anything in any language he wanted to say it in. He is being absolutely clear and he doesn't need any editors or mediators of us to come in and try as Christians to make what he has said palatable to people. And say, well, he didn't really mean this, and he's a lot nicer than he's coming across right here in all of this. This is what Jesus wanted to say, because it's the truth about him, and it's the truth about salvation. Jesus did not come in. You, you, you think about Jesus could have, he could have so easily, if the whole issue was popularity, he could have taken this thing out and not said this and done this and, and gone down as the single most popular person in human history. But he has no concern over being popular. His lone concern is for the salvation of mankind. Jesus did not come in the world to make bad people good. He did not come into the world supremely to make good people better. He did not come into this world in, 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 order to, in order to do these things. He came into the world in order to make dead people alive. He came into the world to save people, to save you and I. That's what he's concerned about. 
He does not care what the world thinks about him as a whole. He cares about you and people just like you sitting in chairs like this all around the world. He cares about your soul. And he cares enough to tell the truth about your soul and the way of salvation that he's willing to take a beating in terms of the, the popularity polls and how he's esteemed by the world at large to deliver the truth to you about your soul. It's wonderful. This is why he declares it with such strength so that it's unmistakable. Jesus purposely, in this statement concerning himself, is creating for every single human being what has become known as the trilemma. C.S. Lewis put it this way. C.S. Lewis was then a long gone with the Lord now, professor at Cambridge University in England, once a very famous agnostic, and ultimately became a Christian. And in this vein, he wrote, he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. And here's what they say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis said, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. And Jesus' statement here, it's masterful. It's just masterful. He forces every single human being to come to one of three conclusions about him. And only one of three. He limits the choices. That he is either a liar, he is either a lunatic, stark raving mad, or he is the Lord that he declared himself to be. If this statement that he makes here in John chapter 14, verse 6, is not true and he knows it isn't true, then he's a liar and nobody should follow him. If this statement is not true, but he thinks that it's true of him, then he's a madman and no one should follow him. But if this statement is true, then every single man, woman, boy, and girl should make him the Lord of their life. And with this statement, he deliberately forces us to come to only one of these three conclusions concerning him. There is no in-between. He purposely refuses to be put in the category that most people put him in, and that is that he is a great teacher or a great man or a great example. If what he says is false here, he is not a great anything. But if what he says concerning himself is true, then every other and any other categorization of him is a complete and total affront and insult to his nature and to his character.
Jesus declares to each of us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he calls on every one of us in this room to put our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins, for the gift of everlasting life, and for the hope and the confidence of heaven. That's what he's calling on all of mankind to do and calling on you to do if you've never done it. Everybody comes to the Lord a little different way. I only know that when I came to know the Lord and really settled the issue of his lordship in my life at the age of 25, I could not have cared less about broad or narrow or tolerant or intolerant. What I was hungry for was the truth and for meaning and purpose in life and for the forgiveness of sins. I remember in college, even in high school and in college, I would look around, but certainly when I got off on my own, and I was looking at the life that I was living, and I thought to myself, there's got to be something more to the life that I'm living. This cannot be about stuffing as much pasta into your face as you possibly can and going to as many movies as you can to keep yourself entertained as days turn into weeks and weeks into months and carrying the guilt of my own sin. But even more than the guilt of my own sin, the desperate need in my life to know what is the meaning and the purpose of life and to secure an eternity to be on the right side with God. And when I heard the gospel and the call to commitment at that age and settled the issue of his lordship in my life, I wasn't concerned about whether it was narrow or whether it was wide or whether it was broad or what all of these things. I was just thankful that God loved me enough to provide a way. And I'm in as, as great an awe today of the fact that he has provided a way for people like me to be saved as ever I have been. In fact, more so in awe. One of the beautiful things about it is a narrow way, yes. It is an exclusive way, yes. But no one is excluded from taking God up on his offer. Is it a narrow gate you have to go through? Is it a narrow way to salvation, faith through Christ? Absolutely it is. But the whole world can form a line at that gate in that way and file on into eternity with God. No one is excluded. No one is so good that they don't need to be saved. No one is so bad that they can't be saved. Everyone can be saved in this narrow way. God is no respecter of of persons. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. God loves you this morning. I think back before I got saved at how many years He loved my soul and He valued my soul 
when I cared nothing for my soul. God loves you. And He values your soul. And He values your eternity. Enough to tell you the truth about salvation and be anathema in the minds of only He knows how many, but willing to do it so that you might know the truth and then respond to that truth and come into the life that He has for you. What a wonderful thing I think it is for us as Christians here this morning to realize, and Jesus speaks this as an encouragement to Christians as well, to realize in this statement of Christ, we are on the way to heaven. We are living life in the truth. There is no better life than the one that we are living. And we are living the greatest life that a person can live as a result of being in that truth. Praise the Lord for that truth that is found in Christ, the richness of our life because of it. Let's pray together. And as we just sit here for a moment in the spirit of prayer,